It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. Who wants to talk sports on a Thursday? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host John Riley. As we head towards the New Year's weekend, we welcome you to our weekly Thursday podcast. John, a ton of topics on the table, some really interesting sports items to talk about, controversy too. But before we get started, let's talk to all those joining us on our live stream on our Thursday podcast. How can they subscribe? How can they be involved? involved with what we do at the end of the show, the fans forum. Yeah, so you can subscribe just by uh, you know clicking on that subscribe button on YouTube. You know, click on that bell. You'll get the updates whenever or the alerts whenever we have a new episode. And uh, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And at the same time, you can get involved in the fans forum. So just uh, type in your questions, your comments. You have a question for Lee. Just type it in there on Facebook or on YouTube. We'll see it on our screen. We'll get you involved in the fans forum segment at the conclusion of Hacksaw's headlines. And if you like what we're doing with our Thursday podcast, I will invite you uh, to please check my website. It's all written. It's LeeHacksawHamilton.com. If you liked our sports talk show over the many years, I think you'll like what we offer on the podcast, but also on my written website. Big college football weekend. John, pick a game. What do you want to talk about? Okay, well, we got to go right to the final four here. So let's take a look at this Georgia-Ohio State game, and this is going to be a classic matchup. It will indeed. It's a unique roster that the Georgia Bulldogs have, number one in the country. They're led not by a superstar quarterback. They're led by a Juco transfer who just kind of hung around, hung around, and got the opportunity to play. His name is Stetson Bennett. And he threw for over 3,400 yards this season, 20 touchdowns, got a couple of running backs. But Georgia builds its reputation on defense, and they are rock solid. Even though they had seven of their defensive starters from a year ago, John, go to the National Football League, they are still really good. Bennett now manages games, but Bennett makes enough plays down the field to throw for 3,400 yards. Georgia, really tough football team. Please answer the question for me. Ohio State. What kind of team are they? Because C.J. Stroud, their star quarterback, put up unbelievable numbers a year ago. This year was en route to a pretty good season, and he lost his top three running backs. They were in and out of the lineup with injuries, and two of them had surgery. He's not been as dynamic down the field making plays. And the Buckeyes have a bad taste in their mouth because, John, what happened in that Michigan game? They got stomped. They gave up four monster plays defensively when they lost at home to Jim Harbaugh's Wolverines. And I can't get that memory out of my mind of the touchdown plays that were 50, 73, 75, and 85 yards, most of them in the second half, when Ohio State just blitzed Michigan. So the Buckeyes versus the Bulldogs will be really intriguing. Will Ohio State be able to move the ball against the dog defense? Because not very many people have. And conversely, what does Georgia do? Which is the real Ohio State defense, the one we saw most of the season, or the one we saw get its brains blown out in the last game of the season against Michigan. If you're asking me, I still think there's way too much firepower at Ohio State, 
But boy, if they turn the ball over like they did against Michigan, they're going to get beat. I just don't know that the Bulldogs have enough offense to keep up in what might be a track meet from Ohio State. And your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just, it's a, both teams are loaded. I'm I'm actually rooting for the, the Bulldogs on this. I mean, I've, I'm sick and tired of Ohio State. I mean, they're always there. I mean, thank God Alabama isn't in the Final Four either. But um, I was really happy when Harbaugh knocked off the Buckeyes, uh, take them down a few pegs a little bit. And I, I know you got your Bearcats jersey on right now. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm just uh, I'm not a huge Buckeye fan. And so I'll be rooting for the Bulldogs and we'll see what happens in this big game. Now, give Georgia credit, though, John. Georgia beat Oregon 49-3 to in the first game of the season. Now, I know that's back in September. But they also beat Tennessee when Tennessee was ranked number one. They beat LSU at the end of the year when LSU, was, Brian Kelly's team, was red hot. And then they stomped Mississippi State. So Georgia's a proven commodity. And, of course, for Ohio State, the end of the season just really leads a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So the Buckeyes have got something to prove. The other semifinal game in the college football playoffs. Michigan against a team nobody expected to be there, Texas Christian. Jim Harbaugh's done a great job in two years resurrecting the Michigan program. You know, two years ago this week, the conversation in Ann Arbor was after a really lousy U of M season, is this guy gone? And look what he did over the last two seasons. And Michigan is obviously loaded. Uh, they they have, I think, one of the most physical offenses in college football, led by the quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, coming off the great win against Ohio State. Now, their lead running back has been hurt and had a scope surgery on his knee, so I don't know if, if Blake Corum is going to be 100%, but the backup, Don Edwards, ran roughshod of Ohio State, especially in the fourth quarter of that game in Columbus. Uh, but this this is a Michigan team that's got fierce defense, powerful offense. And at the end of the season, when everybody had doubts about, well, yeah, they're unbeaten and they're doing well, haven't played anybody. At the end of the season, they beat Penn State. Two weeks later, they beat the hell out of Ohio State. So Michigan's a really good team. TCU, who are these guys? How did they get so good? Thank you, Sonny Dykes. Sonny Dykes has done a great job as head coach, resurrecting a program that had slipped. You know, Gary Patterson had been there a long time and had great success at TCU. He guided the Frogs from the Mountain West Conference, and he was the catalyst that took them into the Big 12. And look where they are right now. Uh, They're unbeaten. they got a quarterback in, in Max Dugan, who was a finalist for the Heisman Trophy. And this guy threw for 3,300 yards and 30 touchdowns and only four interceptions. Of course, in college football, everybody focuses on how great the quarterback is. Their defense is street tough. Holy cow, they are cement hard, and they play really hard. So I'm fascinated to see if Texas Christian, which is so big and physical defensively, slows down everything that Michigan does. Do they make it a different type of game? But... Can Max Dugan hold up against what Michigan does defensively? Fascinating game. Uh, it's emotional. Uh, this, the, half the country is rooting for the Horn Frogs because nobody likes the Big Ten. You're asking me, though, I think Michigan's going to win. And if you're asking me, I guess we're going to have a rematch of the Big Ten Kingpins when we get to the championship game, Michigan-Ohio State. 
but I'm picking I'm picking the Wolverines to beat the Horn Frogs. What say you? Well, what do you think of the seedings? Do you think that they are legit one, two, three, four, or do they purposely put Michigan and Ohio State in the opposite ends of the bracket to maybe set up a championship, or maybe not to have one of them eliminated right away? Well, we had this dialogue about a month ago when we got to the final weekend because at that point. Alabama was in the equation, and there was a lot of debate. I think the dummy on the other side of the table here (laughs) was making reference to, gee, we don't want Alabama playing Georgia in the first round of the college playoffs. Alabama did not get there. Uh, But, uh, yeah, they probably juggled it a little bit. But these guys were running one, two, three, and four the whole back end of the season. And I think the shocker of everything is Alabama's not there. Clemson did not get there. I mean, their whole group of marquee programs are higher ranked, and they all kind of fell off the ladder at the tail end. So I'm picking Ohio State and Michigan to win these two games. Who are you picking? Yeah, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going Georgia. I'm going Horned Frogs. And uh, let's just kind of shake it up. I'm tired of the Big Ten. Okay, and by the way, I mean, you can be wrong on that pick (laughs) if you wish. And by the way... This is Ohio Bobcats, oh, I said, not Bearcats, oh my, not yeah, the my. University of okay. Cincinnati. You're off to a bad start <laughs> yeah, yes, in this game. All right, <laughs> let's go from that. Let's talk about what happened downtown San Diego on Wednesday night. You know, historically, the Holiday Bowl has been a shootout. I remember the first Holiday Bowl game I ever watched on television. I was home for Christmas. I was on Long Island. It was like nine degrees outside, and it was snowing. And I flip on the TV, and there is BYU-SMU. Remember Southern Methodist had the Pony Express running backs, Craig James and Eric Dickerson? Mm -hmm. And, of course, Brigham Young had the assembly line of great quarterbacks, Jim McMahon, Ty Detmer, Robbie Bosco, Steve Young. And I saw that first telecast, Sunshine in San Diego, Palm trees, people in shirt sleeves, wearing Hawaiian shirts to the stadium. I said, that's a pretty cool bowl game. And then they backed it up because the first group of years, the old Holiday Bowl, they had shootouts. They had games that ended on the final play of the game in the fourth quarter. And they developed a reputation for really something special. And that's what we had on Wednesday night at the Holiday Bowl. You had Oregon and its high-powered offense led by Bo Nix. You had North Carolina with a bright young quarterback that threw for over 4,000 yards in Drake May. And they went up and down the field on each other. There were turnovers. They did play defense. Surprisingly, both teams ran the football better than we expected. And then at the end, though, Bo Nix threw a touchdown pass with 19 seconds to go, and Drake May took Carolina down the field with no timeouts and threw a Hail Mary that was batted down on the end zone on the final play of the game. And 36,000 watching the football game in a baseball stadium at Petco Park before they went to party in the Gaslam Quarter. They had a really good time. So the Holiday Bowl stood up and said, here's our ticket, football fans across the country. You people in Buffalo with 44 inches of snow, <laughs> if, you, if you're looking for something neat, This was a Chamber of Commerce postcard day for the city of San Diego and just another installment for the Redcoats, the people that run the Holiday Bowl. How cool was it? Yeah, it was really fun to watch that game. And that North Carolina quarterback really surprised me. I mean, that guy is legit. I mean, what what year is he? Is he still pretty young? He's a sophomore who's coming back. 
Yeah, so he's got a bright future ahead of him. And Bo Nix is coming back, which is really unique as a sixth-year quarterback. He had transferred from Oregon. He wants to stay with the Ducks. Well, and how about how the way the game actually ended with that extra point kick that bounced off the the, upright. the yeah the upright? I mean, Clank. that was just perfect. So what a great event for uh, for San Diego, and looking forward to that coming back every year. Okay, let's talk NFL football because we got some. We're we're down to week seventeen of the National Football League schedule, and there's some real crunch time games. But the one that just kind of grabs my attention is what's going to happen in Los Angeles, and the other one that grabs my attention is obviously what's developed with the Raiders franchise. Uh, in Los Angeles, you got the Chargers versus the Rams. You know about the great greatness of Justin Herbert, the Charger quarterback. This has been pretty impressive, what that guy on the left in the blue jersey did, Baker Mayfield. He's gotten them two victories and three starts, and Mayfield is playing for his next contract somewhere in the NFL, and maybe it will be with the Rams. Mayfield is surrounded by a better crop of players than he had at Carolina, and obviously the mess he was involved in in Cleveland – He's played pretty well. I think this could be a much tougher game for the Chargers than they realize because Mayfield's got these guys motoring on offense. And the Rams last week just knocked out Denver with a fierce defense. So Mayfield's arrow is pointed up. This story in Las Vegas, to me, is an absolute stunner. The demise of Derek Carr. They have taken him off the roster. He will not play. He will not even be part of of the makeup of the games, the final two weekends of the season. He's got a massive new contract that kicks in next year. The rumor is they will attempt to trade him before the guaranteed part of the three years left on his contract kicks in. The demise of Derek Carr is stunning. Do you blame him? I think it's an organization failure on the part of the quarterback. And he's just been the emotional flag carrier for this franchise for this whole group of years. And he has now removed himself from the team. He decided after they told him that we're going to play the backup quarterback so we can get answers on some of these other players on the roster the last two games, now that they're out of the playoffs for the most part, that he said, I'll step away. I'm not going to be a distraction. I won't make myself available to anybody. You do what you're going to do. You know, and they, they, they struggled at the start. They got red hot in the middle, and now they've faltered again. So I don't know if I blame Derek Carr as much as I do Josh McDaniels, the coach, or maybe just Mark Davis and the whole organization. Now, that being said, his career record is a bit of a stunner, 69-80. and 80. It's not a great career, one-loss record. And the last five games that he's played— only completing 52% of his passes. His quarterback rating is down to a career-worst 86. And this is a guy with a heavy-duty running back, Josh Jacobs, and with a star wide receiver, Devontae Adams, and they're just not doing well. He's thrown nine picks in his last five games. So your reaction to Mayfield and your thoughts on the silver and bleak, I mean, silver and black Raiders. <laughs> the, Derek Carr used to always be held in high regard, wasn't mm-hmm. he, for many years? But the uh, the Raiders' defense has just been terrible. He, you know, He's got some talent around him this year, but... You know, it just seems like, you know, the quarterback, you know, gets all the credit or is the scapegoat, depending on how the team goes. So it's interesting that he took a step back, you know, and, and said, I won't be a distraction. Um, I'm not sure how to read that one, but maybe he's just kind of setting the table for next year. As far as Baker Mayfield goes, I love the story. You know, he, this guy was basically on the on the edge of being out of the NFL. Now he is leading a team. He's got the guys rallying behind him. And maybe, you know, who 
knows what's going to happen with Matt Stafford. You know, Baker Mayfield might be the number one or number two quarterback in L.A. next year. I wonder, they have Stafford for three more years on the contract extension. Could they convince Baker Mayfield to sign to be quarterback one, quarterback 1A, knowing the fact that Stafford has the elbow injury and has the neck issue? Now, the Rams are saying he's going to be back for the offseason workouts. He'll be 100%, but you never really know. But if Mayfield has found a chemistry with the people on that offensive side and with Sean McVay, the coach, does he forego free agency and go somewhere else where he could be a starter but maybe in a bad situation to stay with the Rams? Because the Rams, to me, will bounce back next season. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think if, if I'm Mayfield, if the Rams have me back, I'm taking that job, even if I'm 1A or number 2. Uh, we move on. Tough, tough week for injuries in the National Football League. Do you want to start in Miami or do you want to start in Arizona? Well, I mean, let's talk a little bit about, you know, Miami, because Tua, we've been following his career this season. He got off to that great start, got hurt, came back. Now he's hurt again. I mean, is his situation, how serious is it? Well, here's the scary part to the Tua concussion. Now, he's had two concussions this season, had a back injury also as part of this equation. The video shows that he got hurt in the second quarter of the game last weekend hit his head on the turf. That's the second time he's had that injury. Never got pulled out of the game. Never, the officials in the booth never saw anything wrong. He played the rest of the game, but he threw a pile of interceptions in the second half of the Miami loss. Miami's lost four in a row now. So he didn't play very well. Did not show any signs of concussion uh, in the locker room after the game. Monday, and this is the weird angle to the story, Monday, the head coach, the offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach, and the three QBs on the roster have their own private video session, and they review the game. And Mike McDaniel, the coach, was sitting there across the table from Tua, and they showed him formations and asked him why he made this decision to throw the ball here that resulted in a pick. And Tua could not process the information and could not answer it, the question. And at that point, Mike Hmm. McDaniel said, there's something not right. So they got done with a video session, and Mike McDaniel took Tua into his office, and he called the medical people and said, I need you to examine him. I think he needs to go into the concussion protocol. So I, there's a lot of questions about how come the NFL did not notice anything, but concussions can occur, and maybe you don't get a symptom till six hours later at home mm-hmm. or 12 hours later the next day. And that's what I think. I think the latter thing is what happened to Tua. But I, I'm not sure that he plays the rest of the season now that he's had two of them. And secondly, what happens in Miami? I mean, they were one of the beasts in the East in the middle of the season. Mm-hmm. You and I were talking about mm-hmm. them and Philadelphia and Buffalo all being cut from the same cloth. They were in huge trouble. The guy on the right... I tell you what, what a special individual. J.J. Watt had a great career in Houston, played through a lot of injuries. Then they tore the franchise down. He was the last one standing. He wound up getting traded to Arizona. He's had a huge bounce-back season. He's got 111 career sacks. And this week, he just decided to announce now, these are the final two games I'm playing for Arizona, which is out of the playoff race. Uh, Not only was he a great player, Great person. You know, you and I have talked often about athletes, what they do for their team, but also what they do for the community. He privately funded through his wealth a flood relief program for all the people badly damaged by hurricanes in Houston. Privately funded it himself. 
Uh, he is like over $2 million. What a special individual. He's going to be a Hall of Famer, but he's going out on his own terms, and most players in the NFL don't do that. Hell of a guy. I mean, is this a little bit like Jim Brown, like maybe retiring a little bit early, you know, going out on top, maybe so he can be a healthy dad? It's an interesting story. But the, as far as Tua goes, good on McDaniel for, you know, bringing in the doctors. But just think about 10, 20 years ago, they never would have even blinked an eye. They would have thrown him out there the next week and the week after that. And he would have been in real trouble. I mean, if, if this was in the 1980s or 90s. Yeah, well, I, I credit Mike McDaniel for making the decision he made because we all know what's on the line his last two games trying to stop this skid. So they're, they're in a world of hurt there. World of hurt. Yeah, that pretty much signifies where we're going next. Your thoughts, your question on this mess. It, it, what a mess it is, because when the, the season started, we really thought Denver had a shot to be a competitive team in the AFC West, and, and Russell Wilson is going to save them, and the whole thing has just gone to hell. Right from the get-go. That was a nice word you put up on the board, disaster <laughs> in Denver. Right from the get-go, there were questions about Paul Hackett, the coach game management, play calls, was Russell Wilson hurt? Then all of a sudden, in addition to how poorly they played, they fell apart. Their play calling was miserable. Their game management, use or misuse of timeouts was miserable. The decision-making at the line of scrimmage on the pre-snap reads by Russell Wilson was worse. And then they lost their lead running back, Devontae Williams. Then they lost their star left tackle, uh, Garrett Bowles. And all three of their top kid receivers who all have got great speed all got hurt or in and out of the lineup. The Jerry Judys of the world, K.J. Hamler, uh, Cortland Sutton. What a disaster. And they kept losing and they kept losing. And no amount of philosophical discussion at the Monday press conferences by Paul Hackett was going to sell anybody. And then to top everything else, the team quit on them last week. I sat there and I watched that 51-14 Rams rip job on the Broncos. And I said, this guy doesn't get on the plane going home. Mm. And by the time that plane landed, he had been removed as head coach. I asked the question, though, because, I mean, football, it's, it's an organizational business. Yes, we know who the head coach is and we know the star quarterback. But the guys upstairs making the decision— no accountability to the general manager, George Payton. He's the one that hired Hackett from the Green Bay Packers, where he was the offensive coordinator. He's the one that traded the multiple number ones to get Russell Wilson. He's the one that gave Wilson this huge contract extension. It sure looks like Payton made real significant mistakes in assessing that coach or looking at what that quarterback had become in his, in his final twilight years in Seattle. And on top of that... They don't have a number one. The Seahawks own that number one by virtue of the Russell Wilson trade. So Pete Carroll's going to, he's got two number ones in his pocket now. That's amazing. And on top of that, Peyton owes Hackett four years on his contract. That's not a small amount of money to swallow. And they got Russell Wilson on the contract extension for another four years. You think the general manager's on the clock? Should he be on the clock? Why does he still have a job? Yeah, I mean, I think the Denver Broncos are the uh, the L.A. Lakers of the NFL, right? I mean, they really put themselves into a pickle here, trading you know all those draft picks, and now they've got a guy that's on the tail end of his career. 
Okay, by the time we get to halftime here, before we move on to the last group of topics on the table, John, uh, describe for all the viewers how they can join us for our final segment, the Fans Forum, and again, how they can subscribe so they get access to not only what we do with our regular weekly Thursday podcast, but the bonus coverage we provide during the week. Yeah, so um, you can get involved in the fans forum. It's just like the old six ninety ten ninety days. You can get on get on the phone. You know, get those lines lit. All you got to do is type in your question or comment for Hacksaw um, on the YouTube live stream or on the Facebook live stream. We'll see it here on the screen. We'll get you involved in the fans forum at the conclusion of Hacksaw's headlines. And be sure to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, um, Google Podcasts. You know, wherever you get your podcasts, sign up and subscribe for Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. And, of course, go to my website because I write every day on it. If you're a sports fan, if you like what we did on talk show radio, you'll like what we do on our website. It's LeeHacksawHamilton.com. On we go. It's the offseason for baseball. But, boy, there are a lot of baseball stories still out there to be discussed. Well, this whole Carlos Correa thing just keeps unfolding. A lot of drama. And now we're hearing more about Trevor Bauer back in the news. Okay, Carlos Correa. He is the one, obviously, that signed that mega contract, 13 years, $350 million with the San Francisco Giants. And then, in essence, he failed the physical. And the Giants either got cold feet or their doctors were of the opinion there's risk involved. The risk was not with the back injury that he had prior in Houston. The risk was a fractured leg that he had as a minor leaguer dating all the way back to 2014. The baseball guys that I network with of the opinion that there is deterioration somewhere in that bone area of the fractured fibula. He's healthy right now. You know, the agent Scott Burroughs sent out a letter to clubs saying, this guy played 138 and 146 games the last two years. He's healthy. He's had no back problems. I'm led to believe from the network people that I deal with that they're concerned about deterioration in the bone area where the plate is in the leg. And he might be okay right now in 2023, but what about 2025 or beyond that if arthritis sets in? Now suddenly what have you got? An ailing, aging player with maybe a deteriorating leg and then you got an issue with a contract that would spread out over 13 years. That evidently is the reason San Francisco backed away. Then the Mets stole him overnight. A week ago this time, all of a sudden he became a New York Met. Then the Mets had reservations. What I hear, and the Mets had reached verbal agreement on a 12-year, $310 million contract. <clears throat> what I hear is the Mets have said, we'll give you five years at the state-of-the-art salary of $30 million per which was a bump above what he was going to get initially. We'll give you five years, and after that, it'll be our option going forward. So now the agent, Scott Boros, who's been the power player in all this, he's got a huge question. Do I take this guy out of New York and try to put him on the open market? Because if I asked you, if I mentioned Carlos Correa, I would bet the words that come to mind to you would be damaged goods. Mm -hmm. Now, suddenly, Correa doesn't have leverage, doesn't have full value because everybody's scared about what he might be at age 33 or 34 if this thing deteriorates. I got to believe that Scott Boros is negotiating with the Mets right now. Okay, five years at 30 mil. That'll get me to 150. And then our option, whether he stays a sixth year, not your option, Mm -hmm. our option. Or, or your option for year seven, et cetera, et cetera. So I, there's a lot of give and take. 
But this does not bode well for way down road in terms of the mega contract that Carlos Correa had. The other guy, Trevor Bauer. Now, I'm on the street corner. I don't know if you read my one man's opinion that I put on my website. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm on the street corner by myself, but that's okay. Bring the heat, meat if you want. I think the Dodgers, who have till January 6th to make a decision on the final year of the Trevor Bauer contract, should bring him back. Now, that's not a very popular decision, but walk, I'll walk through this with you. He collected $42 million from the Dodgers for the first year and a half that he pitched. Then he was put on administrative leave, but he was still paid while he was off the roster during this whole sexual misconduct investigation. Then, of course, he got suspended and he lost money. Then he appealed the 394-game suspension. They cut it in half. And the arbitrator ruled he must be reinstated immediately by the Dodgers. Well, the Dodgers, by virtue of the reinstatement, will owe him another $22 million. So he's taken $42 million. He still is, he's going to get $22 million whether he pitches in L.A. or somewhere else. The Dodgers need pitching. The Dodgers outside of Julio Urias and Clayton Kershaw are kind of iffy with pitchers 3, 4, and 5. And I know we've talked about the fact they got five young arms that are in the farm system at Oklahoma City and back to AA San Antonio. That being said, those kids have pitched in the minors have not really pitched in the majors. The Dodgers have to pay him money. So if I were king, if I were the Dodgers, and I don't care what you think, <laughs> if I were king, I would sit with Trevor Bauer and say, we will reinstate you. You will get the final $22 million. You will apologize, and you will go to counseling, and you will pitch for us this coming season. And he's pitching for his next contract. Now, he could respond and say, no, I don't like the way I've been treated. Well, I understand that. But you painted yourself into this corner with this, quote, rough sex situation you got involved with this this woman in San Diego. And by the way, you're the one that was involved with two other women with the same environment when you're in Cleveland with the Indians and before that when you're in AAA in Columbus. So you have to share some blame. He, he might say, I want to become a free agent, but please tell me who out there is going to touch him. He's kind of toxic a lot of places. So I think he needs to resuscitate his career by going back on the mound and he was 83 and 59 before the suspension occurred, resuscitate his career, rebuild his reputation, have a good season for the Dodgers. Now, you'll argue with me you want this guy representing my franchise, but the history of baseball, you go back and look. You know, John, if you just Google guys who've been in trouble, who served their penalty, and then got brought back, whether it was the steroid guys or the DUI guys or domestic abuse guys— although nobody was involved as badly as he was, they've resuscitated their career. So the question is, does he deserve a second chance? Do you bring him back and allow him to be the front end of what might be a first-place pitching staff again? I might be unpopular today. No, I know I'm unpopular (laughs) today with my public stance. That's what I would do. I, I don't have to subscribe to his lifestyle, but he owes the Dodgers something. He owes them for the money he took when he wasn't pitching because of the union allowed him to be paid while on administrative leave. And he owes him $22 million for this coming season. That's what I would do if I were Carlos Correa's agent, accept a structure with options to keep him because his value on the open market isn't going to be strong. And that's what I would do if I were the Dodgers 
And Bauer should accept that because Bauer will be unemployed if he thinks he's going on the open market because I don't think a lot of people are going to touch him because he is radioactive. That's what I think. Your turn to argue with me. You might be wrong. I'm a talk show host. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what? It's a sunk cost for the Dodgers, right? I mean, they've got to pay him regardless. Yeah. So if they, let's just say they cut him loose, they still got to pay the guy. And then, and then who's going to sign him? I don't know. If I'm the Dodgers, I wouldn't touch this guy with a 100 foot pole. I mean, this is the era of me too. And, you know, this is a big money situation. They can't be damaging the brand of their franchise. And they got all those young guys coming up. It seems like the Dodgers are taking a step back this year, you know, with the getting the salary cap you know, optimized. I say you give those young guys a shot and you cut Trevor Bauer loose and just say, we have want nothing to do with you. But you don't you don't agree with anybody deserving a second chance anywhere. Oh, no, I do agree with second chances, but he's had second chances and third chances. He keeps getting in trouble. So in this case, no, um, I would cut him loose. He's still going to get paid. So, you know, there's that. Now, as far as Correa is concerned, the the doctors know so much more now than they did 10, 20 years ago. Remember Brady Aiken? Yes. You know, the kid from Cathedral High, and they they found, you know, maybe something in that elbow, and he didn't get the contract, you know, done the way they wanted. With the Astros. With the Astros. And then sure enough, like a year or two later, he blew out his arm. With he Tom- went to Cleveland and then blew it out, and he's never pitched really since. Right, which is a shame. It was a really rough local story. But the point is, is that the doctors, they know. And the technology to scan, you know, the MRI technology, they know what's going on. I was surprised by the severity of that injury because he seems like such a great athlete on the field. But yeah, maybe they've got to take five years and, and 30 mil. I mean, that's not bad. That's not bad money, you know. Okay. Uh, before we get to a break, I want to remind you, if you like what we're doing on a Thursday podcast, please subscribe and check our website at LeeHacksawHamilton.com. World of Sports, we're saying goodbye to a couple people this week. Mm, yeah. So the 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 one here that to really talk a little bit about is Kathy Whitworth. And this is someone that I've just really learned a little bit about. Um, and and I mean, really has more LPGA victories than Tiger Woods and than Jack Nicholas. I mean, this is a superstar. Kathy Whitworth passed away on Christmas Eve in Texas at the age of 83. I interviewed her multiple times. She was the first legitimate face of superstardom in the LPGA tour. Uh, 88 career victories, self-made person that almost quit the tour because she wasn't very good. And then she got hooked up uh, in South Texas with a coach that made her a, a star. And she was the first great face of the ladies tour that 70s became the 80s into the 90s. She won 88 tournaments. She won more than Tiger, more than Jack, more than Arnie Palmer. Just an absolute phenomenal person. And she was then followed by another superstar in Pat Bradley, uh, who is the aunt of Keegan Bradley, who plays on the tour. Hmm. And then there was Betsy King. I mean, it was an entourage of great American golfers that start on the OPGA tour and just really, really nice person. We lost her. And now we've learned that we've lost the king of soccer, the beautiful game. Yeah, I mean, Pele, we, we, we found out he was going to hospice about a week ago, and the world of sports is mourning. He changed the game. Uh, the most unique thing about him was that he came from dirt poor poverty in Brazil. He was a five foot eight fire hydrant. He was stocky. 
He was fast. He was athletic. He reinvented the game of football. His skill level was years ahead of anybody. You know, we just came through the World Cup and we watched the, the brilliance of Kai Mbappe from France and what he did in the World Cup championship game. You know, he's the modern day version of what was Diego Maradona. Maradona was the next version of the greatness of Pele. 650 career goals for Pele. 95 World Cup goals for Pele. He went to the NASL in the 70s into the 80s as part of the grassroots growth of outdoor soccer here in the States. And he was age 34, played a couple years in New York Cosmos. He scored 35 goals at age 34 in the North American Soccer League. So they are, they are mourning. He was a superstar in Brazil. He became a hero and then he became an ambassador to the sport, and he became a phenomenal fundraiser for global hunger. I mean, what a unique, unique man. He passes away at the age of 82. There'll never be another guy like him, and I don't care what the modern superstar does, but what this guy did for decades upon decades, and he drove Brazil to three World Cup championships in the course of 16 years, which is spectacular. One story I saw, there's a video clip of him circulating. This was a young Pele, and this is where he first became known as a skilled player. He's playing in a first division game for Sao Paulo, Brazil. And he's coming down the left wing, and there's a defender out front of him, big rangy defender. Pele gets the ball on the tip of his foot, flicks it in the air over the head of the defender, runs around the defender, gets the rebound, and walks in and scores. Just absolute marvel at the mechanics of moving the ball, etc. So uh, their morning in Brazil, he will never, ever see that again. Yeah, and it, it's it's a sad day, I mean, for both these legends that passed. But to talk about Pele, you know, as, as uh, American soccer fans, you know, we're still three or four decades behind the rest of the world in following the sport. And I remember as a young child hearing about Pele, he was really the only international superstar in the sport. And I really knew nothing else beyond soccer and other than he played for the Cosmos. But now as we're becoming more educated about this world game, we now understand the true greatness of Pele and we can really see him in perspective. You know, he's like, you know, the equivalent of the Michael Jordans of the world, you know, these these athletic specimens and quality individuals that have made an impact all around the world. His style, his athleticism made it the beautiful game. And like I said, I had emailed with an international journalist in Brazil last week and he told me that Pele willed himself in hospice to stay alive till the World Cup was over. It was absolutely really amazing. Wow. And he gave he they did a Zoom when he was in his hospital bed and he was able to talk and he was set up on all these monitors and all that and he stayed alive and he talked to the players at the World Cup in Qatar about the responsibility of being a superstar really in the in the world of football. That, um, that's a awesome. cool story. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, fans forum. This is your segment here. You've got anybody that agrees with you or they just all agree with me, what have they got to say? Just jump on board. And if you got a question, you're watching us on live stream. Uh, to quote 
my friend Jim Rome. Have a take. Don't suck. <laughs> Tell us what you think. Go ahead and fire away. Yeah, so I think they all agree with you, Hacksaw. So here, Tom Laidlaw says legend. You know, hockey friend, longtime player, longtime player agent. It's just kind of unique how you make acquaintances with guys 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And Tommy played for the Rangers and played for the L.A. Kings and is is a super agent. But, uh, yeah, Tommy Tommy played with a bunch of legends with the Los Angeles Kings for sure. All right. Here's another one here. This is from from Neil Umschelt. And again, getting the love, Hacksaw. Hacksaw, you are bleeping brilliant. You are correct. You know, it proves one thing, and John and I have joked about (laughs) sports talk radio in San Diego and all the things we've done in our career. If you do it long enough, you should get good enough at it, right? Right. Yeah, so I, I got a question for you. So what's your take? You know, we're talking about college football playoffs and everything. What's next for San Diego State football? What do they have to look forward to in this offseason? Well, they've, they've got some restructuring to do uh, from a, a player standpoint. They're, they're obviously losing virtually their entire defensive front. Uh, they've signed four junior college players already. I think there'll be an announcement probably in the next couple of weeks that there will be transfer portal guys coming in, probably most of them on the defensive side. Uh, they got to solve the quarterback issue with Jalen Maiden because his last two games against the Air Force and then the bowl game, not very good in terms of consistency. I mean, 17 for 43 throwing the football with three interceptions and a fumble is not quality. So they get they got work to do there. I just tend to think that this was an aberration of a year for Brady Hoke, but it does leave a bad taste in your mouth. They wound up 7-6, and six and they didn't beat anybody really of note. And, and when they played a marquee team, they wound up losing. And they wound up losing to quarterbacks because San Diego State's quarterback situation was in such a state of disarray. And in terms of where they go in the future, I know it's 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 the novelty of Aztec fans, friends, and alums in the media. Pac-12, take us. Well, please tell me, what what do they bring to the Pac-12? Unless the fact they put Pac-12 conference on their calling card to recruit a better breed of player because of being the Pac-12. But I, I don't know they bring anything. You know, and we talked about what, what happened this season at, at Snapdragon Stadium. That stadium we were so excited about to open. And what happened? The horrible opening game and the hard 110-degree heat, and they lost to Arizona, and the season went down the drain, and you had all the quarterback controversies and the transfers and the coach and how he responded to the media. And by the end of the season, they were getting 17,000 in the stadium in attendance. Mm 17,000. Do you think 17,000 Pac-12? No. No way. So I don't know. Pac-12 is not going to make a decision, we're led to believe, until they get the new TV media contract put in place. And that'll be probably sometimes in 2024. And then they'll make a decision. Would I like to see it happen? Sure. I don't think they bring a heck of a lot to Pac-12 football. And I think they'd be a bottom dweller going in the front door. But they'll they'll be able to better recruit because, quote, they remember the Pac-12. But you're getting your brains beat out week in, week out. Is that... Is that good for the program? Basketball obviously would carry a lot of clout because they're probably equal to being as good as anybody in the Pac-12. So it'll be interesting to see, but they got work to do uh, in the offseason just to take the football program and build it back to where it was because it kind of slipped away from them 
this season. Hey, we thank you for joining us on our weekly Thursday podcast. We remind you, please subscribe so that you get all the alerts that we have during the week because we not only post our long-form podcast on Thursday, we do specialty view clips during the course of the week. And check my website. I think you'll really like it. And tell your friends, email, text, and tweet them, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. John, Happy New Year. We'll see out there who agrees or disagrees with me on Correa and on Trevor Bauer. Have yourself a great holiday weekend. We'll catch you next week. Okay. Happy New Year, Lee. Same to you. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us on our weekly podcast. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.